0: Oh, the currencies, they're all crashing While my Bitcoin friends are stashing Deflation is all we know So let it grow, let it grow, let it grow While the bankers are busy crying And the Wall Street crooks are frying Our wealth will be building so Let it grow, let it grow, let it grow And if I ever cash it in For the gold and the silver and tin I'll be living in Waikiki Mary and Ginger and me Some people say not to hoard it But in case you can afford it Find a place where it's safe to stow And let it grow, let it grow, let it grow
1: That's right folks, the holiday season is a perfect time to buy some Bitcoin for you, your family and your friends. Store them offline in one of many cold storage options Then kick back, relax and have a nice cup of Christmas cheer.
0: And if I ever cash it in For the gold and the silver and tin I'll be living in Waikiki Stephanie, Ginger, and me Yes, some people say not to hoard it But in case you can afford it Find a place where it's safe to stow And let it grow, let it grow,
1: let it grow Merry Christmas, everyone!
2: Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 87. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $763 each. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. <laughs> Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me as I podcast from Nashville, Tennessee, the Bitcoin and blockchain epicenter of the South. I'm here each week with my trusty dog, Maxwell, right by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin fanatics who love talking to people about Bitcoin and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Longtime listeners, thank you once again for supporting the show with your tips. And new listeners, we hope you enjoy the show. today's show I am thrilled to have back with me here in the studio author Max Hernandez. Max was kind enough to drop by to see me here at the Treehouse studio in Nashville for yet another rockin' good discussion about freedom and government and dark nets and drones and of course about this very popular novel... Thieves Emporium. Listeners, if you have not read Thieves Emporium yet, please do yourself a favor and head over to Amazon or your favorite online bookseller right now and order yourself a copy. I have a link below in the show notes. And now listeners, please kick back and enjoy the show. Listeners, I have a treat for you today. Back here with me in the Treehouse studio in Nashville, Tennessee, is the one and the only writer extraordinaire, Max Hernandez. Max, welcome back to Bitcoins and Gravy. Thank you.
3: It's good to be here.
2: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So Max was traveling through and decided to stop here in Nashville and say hey to me. It's great to have you here, Max. So for those of you who might remember the earlier interview with Max, Max is the author of... Thieves Emporium, which is one of my most favorite now dystopian future political fiction, okay, and it takes place in the future, potentially not that far down the road, which is a frightening thought. It's a frightening book, it's a thrilling book, and it's a well-written book with good prose and ideas about what could come to pass. So, Max, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Tell our listeners, if you would, about Thieves Emporium, about this novel.
3: Well, it, in my mind, became clear in... uh... 2012, when I started writing this book, that the internet was so complicated that you were going to have a growing underground group of people who were going to become untraceable and undetectable in their activities in mm-hmm. the internet. Uh, that has become true uh, steadily. That's turned out to be a correct guess. Part of the uh, argument is that the Internet has now become so difficult to understand and police and investigate that these individuals are able to maintain complete anonymity. And that's also becoming very apparent. Uh, If you're not uh, sure about what I mean, take a look, for instance, at the concept of ransomware. Mm -hmm. Um, Ransomware is a situation where they download a, a bit of malware on your computer The malware on your computer encrypts the entire drive and all of a sudden all your data is now locked up and you're given a message saying if you want your data back you have to send bitcoins to a particular address and if you do that they send you a key that unlocks your data.
2: And, you know, I don't know any of the people that do that, but I have to say, I love one thing about their style, and that is that in some instances, they actually give people specific directions on how to do that. No, the, they have to. Yeah, they don't leave them with this mystery like, wait, now, how do we get bitcoins and how do we pay? They give them very specific oh, yes. directions on where to go to get bitcoins. So they're very polite, really, you know. They want to get paid. <laughs> they want to get paid. Yeah, they want to get paid. So that's and, why they're and, doing it. <laughs> and what's significant
3: is that they're doing this and they're getting away with it and nobody can find out who they are or where they are.
2: You're not the one doing this, are you? No.
3: no <laughs> just kidding. If I were, I wouldn't be a poor
2: writer. <laughs> a poor writer. Right? right. A starving artist. No, Right, right. Yeah, I know the feeling about the starving artist thing. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's another good example you
3: just gave. Yeah. The ransomware. A- well. As is simple, simple things like, like spam. You know, how long have we been trying to fight spam uh, worldwide? Yeah. And I don't know about your computer, but my computer is overwhelmed with it. Yeah. Uh, it's just increasing leaps and bounds. Yeah. So, you see... All over, little hints of there being a digital underground that is untraceable. Mm -hmm. Um, If you get a a copy of Tor and you go into the Onion Router uh, Tor space, you'll find a a huge number of marketplaces selling everything from uh, fake IDs through uh, digital hacking software Mm. uh, and the kind of databases that we're talking about that get stolen from people and and sold online. I see. Um, And that was all projected in the book. And then the book uh, proceeds to weave these threads together into an analysis of the nature of the problem as it pertains to the, the state, which is kind of a monolithic organization, mm-hmm. and discusses how serious a threat it is mm-hmm. to the current political uh, centralized government theme. And that's really the the where the action begins to start in the book, yeah. of characters struggling uh, in favor of maintaining the the kind of status quo order that the state wants to impose Mm -hmm. and other characters wanting to uh, disrupt it and break out and become free by using this underground world.
2: Yeah, you know, it always makes me wonder about human nature when you see governments coming down on people and squelching dissent and all of that it always makes me wonder why why are they squelching dissent and why do they why do governments seem to gravitate toward the side of the oppressor why is that that's just to me baffling that human nature? Why wouldn't the state gravitate toward being uplifting and to having good relationships among the citizens such that there's a peaceful way to live? If given enough time, it seems like all governments gravitate toward oppressing people with very few exceptions, it seems to me. Why is that?
3: Well, I don't know that I completely agree with your statement. What the
2: hell? You have to. You're on my show.
3: (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Max, go ahead. Well, I would turn to uh, an earlier era. Let us turn back to, let's say, the 1900s mm-hmm. or 1800s mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, government at that time was predominantly local, mm-hmm. uh, pre- predominantly run by the counties. If you if you had uh, a street that needed to put in, you went to the county government to try and get it done. Uh, if you had somebody who was uh, without means living in the street and you wanted it dealt with, uh, you if not the county government, then you went to the local church authorities who mm-hmm. were... Hand in hand, so to speak, with the county government. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you wanted uh, to worry about uh, somebody uh, running around killing people, you called the local county sheriff, and mm-hmm. he arranged to have uh, uh, deputies go out and find the guy. Now, killing is not a county crime. The county will not prosecute you for killing someone. The state would. Okay, right. Murder is a state crime. Right. And yet, when it comes to dealing with that murder, mm-hmm. it was the county sheriff that would arrest the individual involved. Mm -hmm. It was county courts that would try him and convict him. Mm -hmm. And it was a county executioner that would hang him.
2: And interestingly, as an aside, of course, it was the local newspaper that would write about it. There was was no uh, national newspaper or national radio or television That that would tell the entire nation and the entire world about these events. I could almost make the argument also that it was very compartmentalized, and there are good things and bad things about that, but I yes. think you're making a point here, so please continue.
3: Well, well, thank you, and, and I am. And my point is that nobody says, oh, damn, the county government was so oppressive. Uh, I'm not saying that it didn't occur on occasion, but mm-hmm. it wasn't a stable situation. It would run for a while, and the, the locals would finally get tired of whoever was involved and throw them out. That kind of situation was was relatively common, and government was not considered oppressive in those circumstances. Now- Now,
2: let me add, though. Let me uh, interject. You're going to say, now, what's going on these days? As we discussed earlier, it is true that some of those local governments were- run by Billy Bob or what have you. Oh, absolutely. Every country has its own version. Every state has its own version of Billy Bob. And, you know, that might have been four generations of a family that ruled as the sheriff and as the district attorney or as the mayor of that town. And they may have been very oppressive. They may have been very racist. And it may have been a very difficult place to live if you were a black person or if you were Native American or what have you. It may Mm -hmm. have been horribly oppressive in some ways without any legal recourse to realize some of the freedoms that people do have today when they can, for instance, make a call or send an email to the ACLU and the ACLU will show up in their town and fight for them. Now, I know that's very controversial because the ACLU has and does a lot of things that a lot of people disagree with, but the ACLU also does a lot of things that a lot of other people agree with. Mm -hmm. So it's done a lot of good to take away some of that local power and to make things right. It's kind of like an ombudsman who is called in to take a look at a situation in a nursing home. That's very common. They can find out if there are abuses or not. Back in those days, there was no state or federal program that would provide an ombudsman for a police department or for a retirement home, let's say, to find out that these reports were or were not true about these abuses. So there are some Good things, lest we paint a picture of a utopia that used to exist in the small towns that no longer exists. I just want to caution anybody on painting a utopian picture of those times because, you know, you also didn't have dental care that was as good back then either. Yeah. So there was a lot more pain on a lot of different levels, but yeah. please continue.
3: Well, my point is that you're absolutely right. It wasn't a utopian situation, but it was a situation in which bad apples were uncommon. And, and bad apples would gradually fail Mm -hmm. uh new bad apples would arise on occasion so Mm -hmm. you always had a certain number of bad apples around yeah but but it was not the norm it was the exception so the question is why Mm -hmm. why did things work reasonably well under that circumstance and and i would argue it's because of the personal interactions of the people involved Mm -hmm. you know if you had a problem and you really wanted it solved you could walk up to the mayor's house and knock on his door and say, George, I voted for you and there's a problem here. Why are you ignoring me? Mm-hmm. And George knew, because he'd gone to high school with you, that you had certain good points and he could appreciate the good points and, and also the problems and evaluate what you said accordingly. Right. Or he'd say, you're black. Get out of here. Sometimes that would be the case. Sure. Yes. yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it was perfect. Yeah. But Or you're but, a woman. You're not supposed to be
2: talking that way. I'm, anyway, go ahead.
3: Right. Right. And, and and actually let me, let me point out that that issues such as uh, as women having the right to vote yes still occurred during that time in which the government of the United States was very small and counties were the predominant uh, electoral force this was back in the 20s yeah. that was that was the predominant electoral force back then
2: right so um, or he'd say or he'd say you're gay by the way we're lynching you at sundown. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs>
3: but in all probability, what it would happen is that you would find a way to survive in the community with people that knew you and appreciated you for what you were
2: mm-hmm.
3: because you dealt with them every day. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah, And and that's usually what happened is, is some, some method of accommodation was finally reached. Yes. And it didn't follow any particular set form because it was individuals dealing with individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, the old saw about we can know at most 500 people means we can know. Roughly 500 people in terms of recognizing their face, having some idea what their personality is like, mm-hmm. um, even knowing their names. Yeah. And so if you look at uh, the county government then and, and even the county government of the size we have now, you know, 500 people knowing 500 more people knowing 500 more people mm-hmm. means that you can understand how very quickly all of the people that have to make political and economic decisions in the county have some personal relationship with the other people in the county. Makes sense, yeah. Right? That's an, an, an issue of scalability. Mm-hmm. That's something that doesn't happen as you increase the size of government. Mm-hmm. If you increase the size of the government to take the other extreme, the national government, yeah. all right, you have that same small group of people running things, mm-hmm. but now they're in a position where they can't deal with the very bottom mm-hmm. because they're separated by too great a distance yeah. in terms of social hierarchies. Yeah. So instead, they uh, and assuming now that they're trying to do their best and they're honest actors trying to work things out, mm-hmm. they have to produce laws and structures and regulations and bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. And those bureaucracies have to give in instructions on how they're supposed to work. And it doesn't matter who the individual is at the other end. Mm-hmm. There is a rule. You must obey the rule. Yeah. And so your answer about why... Governments are cracking down on individual freedoms, Uh uh, individual rights of expression, Uh trying to force everybody to behave in certain normative ways. Uh They're doing that because that's the only way bureaucracies and rules can function. Uh If they allow individuals to operate outside the rules, it's not like in the old county-level government where you can say, well, yeah, Joe's an asshole sometimes, but hmm. but it goes away. We know Joe, and, and and so we're going to ignore this. And Joe, you know, please calm down a little, all right? Right. All right. You can't do that if you're running a large, monolithic national government. Yeah. And so that's one of the big reasons why tyranny always seems to occur. With Makes large sense. Governments. It's pretty sad. There's a difference. There's a separation yeah. between the individual who we have evolved to be able to deal with creature to creature. And an entity who is way down the power system, who is to you only a name and a number to be made to behave properly.
2: Right, so there have always been hierarchical systems, and there always will be. You see yes. it on the playground in school, anywhere, exactly. you, anywhere you put human beings, and exactly. in the animal world as well. Yes. But you're talking about the size, the scale, the, scale the magnitude the of the that is correct hierarchy. That is correct, that
3: is correct. And I believe that's, for, for a number of reasons, that's, that's why... We are never going to be able to get a national government that does the things that we want to have happen. Hmm. You are never going to be able to provide power and authority to a national government and expect them to use it wisely. Right. Because the system just doesn't allow at that distance between you and the top of the national organization for it to be used widely. Yeah. The national government must use what are inherently blunt instruments in order to try and exercise their will. And that means you, at the other end, are the hammer that that blood instrument is going to wind up working on.
2: Yeah, it always disturbs me. <laughs> it always seems so Orwellian when we have a national event, whether it's the or debate between two jamokes, like we saw last night, or uh, the Super Bowl, or what have you, that you have, you know, <laughs> 200 million people watching the same event, And, you know, maybe those same 200 million people are all ordering from Pizza Hut and they're all drinking Coca-Cola. It just seems to me so unnatural that these people separated by massive distances living in areas that are radically different geographically. Some people are in the mountains, other people are down in the desert, other people are out by the ocean, but they're eating and drinking and (laughs) the same things and thinking the same thing and watching the same thing and being trained or so it seems mm-hmm. to have the same aspirations and to have the same dreams so that eventually we're all thinking the same way Three hundred people it's a frightening thought right and yes of course it would be nice to start referring to each individual state or group of states as an individual country? It, is that something that we could possibly see in the future, that you could have a region that's not a place that's seceded like Texas? By the way, if you guys want us to secede, go ahead. I'm all for it. <laughs> but uh, we're going to put a wall around you, though. But, you know, is that possible? Is that something that we could see? Is that realistic? Could we see a future where more of the decision-making gets done on the state level is
3: that unrealistic in the past the answer to that has pretty much been unfortunately no yeah you can look at the history of of the kind of concentration of central power that's going on in the united states and see it repeated over and over again in such things as the collapse and fall of the roman empire to take an extreme case the roman empire would concentrate power more and more in the hands of fewer and fewer uh because it was such an effective force the people at the bottom just got poorer and poorer, and the people at the top had no reason to understand how to turn things around or even why to turn things around. They could continue to enforce policies that eventually result in the destruction of the entire system. That is no longer the case. I truly believe that things have now changed drastically within our lifetimes because of the creation of the internet and the kind of instability that I see in that digital domain. Now, the average person has the ability to fight back by destroying the kind of communications and data structure that large centralized organizations have to have in order to function in the modern world. I mean specifically by uh, breaking into systems, stealing the kind of database you see, uh, taking money in a digital form that is now untraceable or virtually untraceable like Bitcoin, and, and soon to be even more so with things like Monero and Dash. Right. Um,
2: and of course, on the more peaceful resistance front, people are able to write articles and have them published and have audiences of a million without being hired by a major newspaper. That's exactly right. So that's, you that's, know, exactly that's right. The, kind of the peaceful resistance side of it, which I know you're yeah. fully
3: aware of. One of the um, points that is made in Thieves' Emporium is that the printing press allowed the nation state to come into existence because it was the first medium by which the few could disseminate ideas and dogmas and philosophies to the many. So it resulted in a cultural norm very much dictated by the few and followed by the many. Now, for the first time, because of the internet, we have an environment in which the few can talk to the many Mm -hmm. in the other direction. Yeah, Uh, We're doing it right now. We're sending out for very little money, a statement to the world, putting out a philosophy to the world, and those people in power can do very little about it. Mm -hmm. If they try to crack down on the internet, the holes that I'm talking about, the weaknesses, the security chinks, uh, are such that we can simply go underground and repeat what we're doing now, Mm -hmm. only in an underground environment where they can't stop us. Yeah. Um, So it's drastically changed the entire power structure that was created by communications.
2: Yep, and you know what? Some people think of that underground movement as really being underground, like the Underground Railroad or like Hogan's Heroes, <laughs> the tunnels that they built underneath mm-hmm. the concentration camp and all of yep. these things that have to be kept hidden. I think that there very well may be a day when, like you and I discussed at lunch, the mesh network is real, um the safe network is real. We're using drones, as you're going to talk about, to bounce signals for Internet so that we can use the Internet and we can use the Internet in an encrypted, anonymous way, a distributed way that can't be shut down, that's
3: not relying on central servers, right? Yes, yes. I believe that is, that is in the cards. So it doesn't
2: have to be this you know, dark net secretive sort of thing that very few people can get involved in. You have to be involved in some kind of crime or drugs or something illegal, and you have to know the right people and be able to have these high technical skills to be involved. You know, hey, how about a future 20 years from now when every Tom, Dick, and Harry and every school kid (laughs) has their own little set of wheels, as you talk about in Mm -hmm. the book, and they're able to just easily go on, surf the internet, and do whatever they want to do, communicate in any way that they want to, easily, virtually for free, and 100% anonymously. That's
3: possible. That is the future that I am projecting. Yeah. And once that comes, the mechanisms that the centralized government used to have to maintain control over everybody are going to break down and disappear. Mm Mm-hmm. And with it, I believe, the ability of the government at the highest levels to even exist. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to find that you have a crumbling of the political structure.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Now, that crumbling may stop at the state level. Mm -hmm. It might continue on to the county level. But I believe at some level, the interpersonal relationships of the people who run the county or run the city or run whatever authority structures there are Mm -hmm. will be such that they'll be able to deal with each other without being destroyed by this kind of digital attack. Yeah. Without being disrupted, you know, Joe will call up and say, hey, deposit $400,000 on my account. Will you Ed?" with an email online? And Ed will say, wait a minute, I just talked with Joe this morning at breakfast. I know he didn't want me to do that. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that kind of game, which would work very well at the highest levels, doesn't work anymore because of the interpersonal relationship that provides a strength that doesn't exist at the higher levels. I like
2: that idea. You know, when I talk to people that I know who have no clue about anything bad that goes on, they envision a future in the United States where their children and their grandchildren will be able to enjoy the exact same privileges that they've enjoyed, that they will have the sock hop, and they'll have the homecoming game, and they'll have the prom, and nothing really will change. They'll be able to go to Disneyland or Disney World, buy the same things, shop in the same malls. They think that things are going to stay the same. A lot of other people know that's not going to be the case, but how do you explain, or how do you convince a person who believes that everything's going to always stay the same in this magical Disney sort of way, how do you convince them of just this one simple idea? And that is, there are some major problems with government. How do you convince people that don't believe there are any real major problems with government? How do you convince them that there are some significant problems with government, so significant that it is... Not just worrisome, but worrisome in the sense of we see a 1984 unfolding in front of us. How do you
3: convince people that don't believe that at all, that that really could come to pass? How do you convince them? There's a famous quote from Mark Twain in which he said it's much easier to fool people than it is to convince people that they have been fooled. Hmm. And and Hmm. frankly, the answer to your question is that there is absolutely no way you can convince somebody who believes that the system is working and the system is fine and the system will right itself, there is no way to convince them otherwise because this is a belief. Yes, This is a fundamental belief just as sound as in its own way a religious belief is. Yes. And the only thing that you can do is step back in the hopes that they will eventually have a okay, things aren't good moment. Yes. And when that strikes, then they're looking for alternate descriptions that might match the new model they see. Right. At that point, the idea of providing them with information, with suggestions, with ideas, that's the point at which you need to step in. Yes. Uh, you
2: know, with that, I have to preface my next statement by saying that um, when it comes to politics, genuinely, at this juncture in American politics, I hate hillary and donald equally i hate them equally mm-hmm. i have my opinion of who i think would do the less damage in terms of world war three but i won't get into that maybe we will get into that but <laughs> one thing that hillary said last night in the debate that i've heard her say a number of times and someone wrote it for her. it's a speechwriter's little uh, snippet of it's a speechwriter's slogan that's supposed to make people feel good and she said america is great because it's good and i've heard her say that a number of times and it's a great uh, the imagery there is, we are great because we are good. Well, you know, I happen to believe that on one level. I believe that this nation is great because the people here are good. Because I believe that fundamentally, people are good wherever you go. 80% of the people around you are good people, no matter where you are. 20% are not so good, and of that 20%, 1% is rotten. Additionally, the United States is made up of people from all over the world, as we were talking earlier, whether you live in Japan or Switzerland or Uganda, chances are you know somebody who lives in America or you've known somebody who lives here or you have a relative here or know somebody who has a relative here in the United States, right? So this country is comprised of really, really, good people. And that's what makes this country great in addition to, of course, the geography from sea to shining sea. You know, we've got the Grand Canyon and all of the beautiful things about this country. So on that level, this country is great because what we have all around us is goodness. But she's talking about some idea of greatness as a whole that we are together great as we move forward in some way that includes anything that our federal government wants to do so we can still consider ourselves great even if we act like imperialists and invade a sovereign nation and slaughter people we can still hey folks we can still consider ourselves great because we're good (laughs) you know and that so that's where that whole slogan breaks down and becomes false That if you include our government, it's not just federal government, but it's, you know, bureaucracy in a lot of ways and corporatocracy, if you can call it that. It's when that is out of control and when those entities are doing bad things. You know, when you have a pharmaceutical cartel hell-bent on selling products with almost a complete disregard for the effects of those, the long-term effects of those products, then is it really fair to say America is great
3: because we're good? I don't think so. One of the things I think about often, and I like to ask people, is when was the last time we had a president that you thought did a good job? Whew, that's a tough one, man. Yeah, and, and the answer for me is I, I've never been alive when we had a president who had done a good job. And I'm an old man now. Yeah. Uh, and does that mean that's because we never elect any good people to office? Uh, no, I don't believe that's true uh to be uh give an example in my case reagan i felt reagan had all the capabilities of of doing an excellent job and i elected him and he had the right philosophies and yet he still wound up with the biggest biggest increase in debt uh, of of any president for quite a while
2: right now i would say that the reason for that is because reagan was a hollywood actor and a tool i would describe ronald reagan as a tool
3: okay well that is probably another way of saying what I would say, yes, which is that it's not the person, it's the system. Mm-hmm. The system doesn't function because of this hierarchical size and scale issue that I'm talking about. Yes, it doesn't matter who you put into office. If you put in a good person, he will be ineffective at best and he will be corrupted at worst. Mm-hmm. If you put in a bad person, he will be able to pull all the levers to make himself incredibly wealthy and powerful mm-hmm. without any oversight, because mm-hmm. we who would watch over what he is doing are far, far too far away from him mm-hmm. in in a social and structural sense mm-hmm. to be able to really see what's going on.
2: But I would also argue that if you put anybody there in the Oval Office and they don't do what's right, then they are a person without integrity. So if You put a person in office and they don't believe that we should invade Iran, for instance, or use a nuclear option on Iran, for instance. They don't believe that, but they go ahead and buckle (laughs) to what the Pentagon and the Pentagon subcontractors and the war profiteers want to do. And, you know, the people that want strategic positioning for natural resources and for safety Mm -hmm. reasons. There are other real reasons that we invade nations. It's not all just for oil and natural resources, although that, you know, is a huge impetus. But if that person as president does not stand up and say, no, 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 I'm against that. No, I don't want to do that and get up in front of the American people on television and say, hey, the Pentagon wants to do this. I think it's a bad idea. My saying this is going to get me killed,
3: just wanted to let everyone know before I die. Mm -hmm. That person has integrity. That may be, but the argument and the point that I'm trying to make is that it doesn't matter who we elect Mm -hmm. because you're never going to get somebody who's good enough to change the system. Mm -hmm. What we must do is we must change the system. And the way the system must be changed is that political power and authority and decision-making must be moved from centralized hierarchical systems at the top back down to the local level, as it was before the start of World War II. Would you say to the
2: state level? Would you be happy with that?
3: I don't think that that is enough, honestly. I think most of the power needs to come to the to the local level. Yeah, counties. But certainly some of it needs to stay with the state level, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, cities
2: yeah. cities, and counties, that, that would be nice. Cities and,
3: and counties, That's that's correct. As well as individuals. Let me point out that we've lost a tremendous amount of individual political power in this country yeah. since World War II. Yeah. And and that's where the, the most fundamental form of political power should reside. It should reside with you and with your family. Uh, just as you are should be most concerned about the welfare of you and your family as opposed to to people living in Iraq or, or uh, the world in general or even California. Yeah. So my argument to everybody is, first of all, if you're Republican or Democrat, if you're saying we just need more power in Washington, but it needs to operate on good socialist principles, you're fooling yourself.
2: On good socialist principles? As an example, this is one of the problems
3: that the Bernie Sanders people uh, would argue is they feel that, that all we need is to get the right people in office with the right philosophies and we will solve all that problem. Right. And I'm saying, no, you can't do that because the system just won't do what you want it to do. Right. Well, the example
2: that I always use is yeah. take Barack Obama, take George W. Bush. Yeah. And, you know, the day that they went into office, does anybody really imagine that this, and I'm putting giant quotation marks up in the air, commander in chief is telling the Pentagon, what to do, does anybody really imagine that George the frat boy Bush or Barack Obama the slick lawyer, does anybody really imagine that these guys are telling The Pentagon, this massive corporation with all of its subcontractors, trillion-dollar business deals. Does anybody imagine that this little man is telling these people what we're going to do and what nations we're going to march on and invade? That's ridiculous. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, you know? Commander-in-chief in in name only. Let's just call them chief puppet because that's, in my opinion, more than anything,
3: what they really are. Well, that's entirely possible. Yeah. But the, you're, you're up against the same issue regardless of where the power center is, regardless of whether the power center is in the president or the power center is in, let's say, the head of the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. or the power center is in the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really matter. They're all up against the same point, which is that they're unable, even with the best intention of providing for a system that works. Because their, their range of control, their span of control, and the number of people that they can deal with is just so limited that any active, positive effort that they produce will never get all the way down here to the bottom. Yeah. Let me give you uh, some examples, all right? It will never trickle down. We'll, <laughs> anyway, we'll never. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> you know, it's like trying to work a screwdriver when you have to stand uh, on the other side of the room with a long piece of bamboo. Yeah. And get the screwdriver to go in the screw and turn it.
2: Yeah, it's not going to happen.
3: It's not going to happen. You have simply lost too much fineness in your control. You're now forced to use blunt motions. Mm -hmm. Screwdriver goes all over the place. It doesn't hit the screw. Yeah, That's the nature of the problem that exists when you have a centralized uh, government.
2: I agree. And I was making a joke about trickle-down, of course, in reference to trickle-down economics, where we know, (laughs) looking at reality around us, that so much of what people have been promised would trickle down or uh, you know would come to them never did yes
3: never yes. happened let me give you a, a couple of other examples here that I hope will make a point um, if you think of of hierarchies mm-hmm. and the scope and the range of activity and, and by the way I, I, I need to stress here that one of the, the main issues that determines how large a hierarchy is is the range of its Authority okay and that range is not just vertical but it's also horizontal and mm-hmm. let me give you an example
2: the range and the reach of the authority yes, you're referring basically. to okay let
3: me give you an example when we had government uh before 1900 we had a constitution that was very firm and very effective and the constitution was there limiting the sovereignty of the federal government mm-hmm. you could still have a federal government and it could still do certain things mm-hmm. but it couldn't try and reach all the way down and tell somebody in Galveston, Texas, that he had to pay some taxes. Right. It couldn't do that. Right. It couldn't do that because he didn't have the sovereignty to do so. Mm-hmm. It was limited because the states then had further sovereignty, and because of the practical nature of trying to communicate over distances, mm-hmm. the states had limits on what their sovereignty was. And in the end, the only person that could ever collect taxes from some guy lying on the beach in Galveston, Texas, was the county in Galveston itself. Right. They just didn't have the ability to reach their authority further right. than that, and
2: that's the way the Constitution was set up so that they did not have. It was specifically
3: to prevent the kind yeah. of concentration that we're talking about. Yeah. If you allow for that concentration, there are examples in which that is still a very good thing uh, to take, or at least not a horribly bad thing. Yeah. To take a, an immediate example that occurs to me, the post office. Yeah. Now you can say the post office is ineffective. You can say it's very expensive. You can say people at post office are rude to you. Yeah, there are all sorts of reasons why it doesn't function perfectly. It's a human organization. Human organizations don't function perfectly. Yeah. But in the end, when you drop a letter in your mailbox here, it gets delivered to Portland, Oregon. Yeah. The post office does function. It does. And it functions because it's... Uh, Limits of authority are very, very specific. Mm -hmm. It has a very narrow task that it is assigned, and that is to move the mail from one place to the other. Yeah. It is not there to tell you if you can bake a cake saying gays or queers are not allowed in your wedding. Mm -hmm. All right. Has nothing to do with that. Hasn't got any authority. And therefore, because it's very, very limited in the scope of its authority horizontally, not Mm -hmm. vertically, vertically, Mm -hmm. it's nationally, horizontally, it's also able to function quite effectively.
0: Yeah.
2: This episode of Bitcoins and Gravy is brought to you by our good friends at MoonshineBootWax.com. Made by hand in small batches right here in East Nashville, Tennessee, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is the original, all-natural, non-toxic boot wax with a scent of orange. Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is a proprietary blend of American beeswax and other fine, all-natural ingredients. It's specially formulated to feed and protect your leather while also offering an excellent long-lasting shine. Whether it's your cowboy boots, your expensive wingtips, or your wife's favorite pumps, Moonshine Boot Wax is a must-have for gentlemen who care about their appearance. Moonshine Boot Wax is proud to partner with Community Food Advocates, a nonprofit organization working to end hunger by creating a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. Together with Community Food Advocates, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is making a positive difference in the Nashville community, one shine at a time. You can buy your very own 4-ounce tin today by going to moonshinebootwax.com. And best of all, you can pay using
3: Bitcoin. All right, to take another example. Okay. Take a look at the American military. Mm -hmm. If its objective, its goal is to defeat the German military, that means it's sending its people in uniforms out to hunt down and kill or capture. German people in uniforms. And this is World War II. Okay. And it was very successful because its goal was very well-defined and narrow and the authority that it could exercise was very narrow and well-defined. Yeah, I like it. Now turn around and ask the military instead to defeat the Viet Cong and build up a nation state in South Korea. That's a very, very broad brief. It's being told it has to take on a huge number of different tasks couldn't do it. Yeah. The result was a debacle in Vietnam. Yeah. And it's not just been Vietnam. It's been Iraq. It's been Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's been Somalia. You can go a uh, hundred places around the world and find areas where the U.S. military has fell in its face.
2: That's right. And by the way, the Viet Cong is not anything that existed prior to the United States propaganda machine creating the term Viet Cong. Well,
3: it was called the Viet Minh. Exactly,
2: but Viet Cong was something that was used basically to dehumanize the people. Go out and kill the Viet Cong. Do you mean human beings, women and children that look Asiatic? Uh, yes, we're referring to the Viet Cong. Kill, kill, kill. Also, most people don't know that that invasion was peripherally about oil. But that's
3: a whole different subject. But continue on with what you were saying. When I define a centralized hierarchy mm-hmm. in terms of its scope, Mm-hmm. Its scope is inherently limited by this description in terms of the horizontal nature of it, by what it is that it's given authority to do and mm-hmm. required to do with that authority. Yes. And in a vertical sense, by how far down it can exercise its authority before it runs into limitations on its sovereignty, either legally, as in the Constitution and the states, Mm -hmm. or practically, as in the state's ability to actually administer what goes on inside a county level.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. And I have to just say one thing about the wars that the U.S. has waged in recent years. You know, I've been asking people recently. So if every time the U.S. wages a war, whether you think it's right or wrong, a moral war or an immoral invasion... Regardless of what you think, if every time we wage one of these invasions, the Pentagon subcontractors make billions of dollars, are those profits that are made simply just the natural, innocent, normal byproducts of war? Or is it possible that... These debacles that we involve ourselves in don't really matter to the people who are creating these because they don't really care if it's a debacle or not. They get to sell helmets and tanks and missiles, and they get to make their billions. And if the whole thing falls apart, works well or doesn't work well, some of these subcontractors maybe really just don't even care at all. So is it possible that some of these foreign wars that the U.S. wages and other countries wage, is it possible that these are really wars for profit? Is it possible that that's more of what they're doing than any strategic positioning?
3: I agree completely with what you're saying. Uh And it enters into another one of the aspects of the scalability issue of human organizations, Mm -hmm. and that is corruption. When you have the kind of situation you're talking about, that's corruption, in which military contractors spend money on politicians and those making decisions about going to war so that they can arrange for a war and thus make the profit on the war to turn around and spend the money back bribing the politicians again. That kind of corruption exists everywhere. It exists at every level in a hierarchy. Yep. It exists at the county level where they decide whether they're going to pave your road three times even though it doesn't need it. <laughs> right. All right. The difference is that at the county level, you can see what's going on. Yeah. You can see that your road doesn't need paving. You can start to call the newspaper. You can start to scream and complain and want to know why your taxes are being used to pave a road that doesn't need to be paved. Yeah. That doesn't happen at the higher level. The feedback loops that inhibit the growth of corruption in large centralized hierarchies don't exist because the interpersonal relationships don't exist. Those same feedback loops do exist very much at the county level. You still have corruption but it's limited in how far it can get into the system simply because we can all see what's going on. And so that's one more reason why hierarchies do not scale. Nice. All right, so Max, now, in order
2: for Adam B. Levine to put this show on the Let's Talk Bitcoin, (laughs) to put this show on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, Adam, if you're listening, hope you're doing well, man. Hope your music's doing well. Hope Tokenly's doing well. Hope the LTB network is doing well. Uh, Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, everybody out there, howdy! Uh, that includes you, John, Rob, et cetera, et etc. Um, we've got to talk about Bitcoin. All right. <laughs> Is Bitcoin dead? I haven't even been following. Is it still alive? No. no What's it like? So. Still at two hundred dollars? What's? Going- oh no,
3: it's up. It's up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm waiting, way over six hundred. In fact, it's what? amazing. Recently, <laughs> recently, I I had a chance to uh, do uh, you know Blockchain.info and look up and see what was going on. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and I remember. 'Cause there it shows a transaction stream, you know. Yeah, yeah. Every type. time there's a transaction, that's there's right. a new line item. It's a know?
2: blast to watch. I watch that sometimes and I'm like, okay, two thousand dollars, ten thousand, five hundred and every once in a while you see one for like four hundred and fifty thousand, you're like, Oh god, I'd that's love, right. I'd that's love right. to be that guy.
3: That's right. <laughs> I remember not too long ago when I would watch it and you would see a transaction pop through every ten or fifteen seconds. Oh wow. You know that wasn't all that long ago. That was the good old days, though, really. And and yet, when I look at it, like a week ago, yeah, I'm looking at it. They're going like
2: <laughs> the tempo is raising, oh, folks. Yeah.
3: And it used to be that you saw that the size of the average block, you know, sometimes it was like 50k. Sometimes it would be a couple of hundred. Occasionally, you would see a block that was up around, uh, you know, a K. Big block occasionally but right. it wasn't all the time all right. now you look at it and every single block is right at a thousand it's obvious that the system is choked and what's going to happen i'm sure is that the cost of doing bitcoin transactions is going to go up quite a bit in order to decrease the number of transactions that people want to have yeah man company. you
2: know what my fear is it's going to go up to a quarter.
1: Well, <laughs> a quarter, uh,
3: it, a whole quarter dollar it, back when it, I was it, your age, we used to buy a whole stuffed turkey with a quarter nah, plus I don't all the know. fictions. But uh, <laughs> I think that the fact that it's become so popular is one of the indications of why the price does continue to go up. Yeah, but to answer your question about the issue of Bitcoin, one of the ways that our government at the moment controls us mm-hmm. is through our money. Yeah, they uh, print the money. They can turn around and spend it with military contractors, as you say. Yeah. The military contractors can then turn around and bribe people with that money. Oh, yeah. That's all money created by the government robbed out of our pocket. Yeah. Bitcoin is the first instance that has ever come around in which the government can't be involved at that. Yeah. Uh, The other instances which are always physical in the past were gold and silver. Yeah. You know, I could always pay you a piece of gold to do something to fix my car. But if I wanted to run larger financial systems, let's say I wanted to pay somebody in New York uh, to send me a train load full of manufactured equipment that mm-hmm. they made in New York. yeah, There's no way that I could do that with gold unless I had a, a financial intermediary yeah, that right. took the gold and I had to trust him, pass on at the other end. And of course, if there's a government involved watching over things he winds up being subject to the government action yeah for the first time ever bitcoin now enables me to pay you directly without any third party and that is that is a major major change in the structure of, of the financial system
2: yeah it's pretty nice for anybody listening who has never used bitcoin i would encourage you to just you know find a service online or find a product online uh you know you could go to uh, moonshinebootwax.com and and buy a tin of moonshine Bootwax or a bottle of miracle residue remover it's a local nashville company and you can pay right there online using bitcoin using your smartphone your android or your apple if you have one of those things um, and it's a thrill to see it happen because you know You actually get to see the transaction confirm right there in front of your eyes. And you might have the impression that your cell phone is communicating with your computer. Your cell phone's not really communicating with your computer. You've just done a transaction on the public ledger, on the Bitcoin blockchain, and you're seeing the results of it on your computer. the transaction confirms sometimes you have to wait a little bit other times it's instantaneous depending on the business but yeah it's a thrill to to do it if you've never done it just do it you know and if you've never bought bitcoin you know go wherever you have to go there's a million places where you can buy bitcoin now and spend ten dollars on bitcoin and if you're a little bit skeptical about it but you're still investing your money with your broker or what have you hey If you've got that kind of money, take a hundred bucks or 500 bucks and buy a piece of a Bitcoin and just hold it somewhere. Uh, Even on Coinbase, you could hold it there. You could hold it in a paper wallet or what have you. There's a lot of different ways to hold it. But just get a hold of a little bit of Bitcoin, experiment with using it, or just hold on to some and just see what happens moving forward. Because it's looking like it's going to be a good thing to hold on to. What do you think about that, uh, Max?
3: I agree. I I happen to have some Bitcoin and paper wallets that I have bought and are speculating
2: with. I was talking to Max, my dog. Oh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you happen to have some Bitcoin you've held on to? Yes. yes That's a you.
3: wise man right there. That's a wise man. One of the other things that I might mention Yes. Uh, it has to do with the fact that now, because of microchannels, mm-hmm. there is uh, the possibility to be able to spend very, very small amounts of Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. And if that comes into existence, it opens up the possibility for all sorts of services that practically were never available before. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the aspects of it that I'm, I'm working on in my new book has to do with uh, mesh nets. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the questions that revolves around mesh nets always is, well, how does a system like that get paid for? Why would you want to put up a mesh net server and contribute to a kind of a common collective system of internet backbones when you can't be given an incentive to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you assume that very, very small transactions become available uh, through micro channels for Bitcoin, mm-hmm. that means I can set up my MeshNet node to charge every transaction that goes through, every communication that goes through, every use that goes through, a small, small fraction of a penny. Mm-hmm. And because of the volume that has to be done with MeshNet, because unfortunately the nature of MeshNet is that it's, it's, it's a low bandwidth system, even though it's a high communication system, mm-hmm. because most of the individual elements on the net are spending all their time passing data back and forth and not really taking it or sending out at that net. Right. The result is that I can wind up making enough money to more than pay for that system. And that's one of the aspects that I am talking about in the book I'm working on, in which a a centralized authority attempts to take charge of the physical internet. And the pushback that they get comes from entrepreneurial individuals who put up individual mesh nodes on drones that collect a small amount of money every time somebody communicates through the mesh. And because they're on drones, they move from site to site to site. So they become exceptionally difficult for the authorities to try and track down and remove.
2: I like it, and I assume you're not talking about really expensive drones that cost thousands and thousands no. of dollars. Little teeny drones that go around, if they get shot
3: out of the air, no big deal. That's correct. Uh, I, teeny is not the word I would use, Okay, but, but mass-produced, uh, <laughs> yes. and therefore inexpensive drones. Yes, mass-produced, Absolutely. And I think the cost, like everything else, uh, goes down as the production goes up, and if you have a drone that you're producing for a, let's say, a mesh net node application, that's a very standardized kind of specification. You Mm -hmm. can have a standardized, mass-produced design going out. Everybody can produce one in his basement with a a 3D printer, let's say, Mm -hmm. and and buying a few parts online. And um, produce a drone relatively cheaply that'll produce a lot of profit.
2: I love the idea, man. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I theorized that one day, I was looking up at the sky one day watching a plane and I theorized that, and this was probably 40 years ago, that one day the sky would be full of airplanes. There would be so many people traveling. And I just was thinking in terms of passenger planes, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So maybe somehow my little mind was seeing a future of drones flying all around. So the drone wars are coming. It's horrible. It's actually horrible what's going on with drones right now with the illusion that we are the peacekeepers of the world, and yet we're drone bombing uh, eight different nations right now. It's, It's really, really horrible. So, okay, now listeners if you've not read max's book thieves emporium go get it it's like a thriller in a certain way it's a great book it's a great read it's very very exciting but anyway okay so thieves emporium do you want to give the listeners a brief synopsis of it without
3: giving away the exciting sure The, the the purpose of the book is to provide education on issues such as the way the government uses money to control us, Mm -hmm. and the way the government uses surveillance to control us, and the way the government uses various techniques of data gathering on the internet to control us, Mm -hmm. and what you as an individual can and should do to try and get out from under that. Mm -hmm. Now, that would, for many people, be an extremely dull topic. And so the book is written as a fiction novel, Mm -hmm with plot and characters, fast-moving, apparently very interesting, at least it was supposed to be, and judging by the reviews I've gotten, it has been. Yeah, yeah. With the lessons woven through it, demonstrated by the characters as they attempt to survive. The conflict involved is one of a young mother who has to provide for her two daughters in a world that is economically very, very difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and what she finds is that there's a rabbit hole that she gets to stumble down to into an underground digital Internet world uh, full of all of the good and the bad that you imagine on the Internet, you know, full of uh, murder for hire, child pornography, drugs for sale, uh, and also political groups actively trying to fight a tyranny that's coming in from the government, mm-hmm. actively trying to uh, create an economic system in which you get to keep the money that you produce. You're not taxed to death. Uh, you, you can actually survive and feed your family. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the system, a government agent who happens to be with the Secret Service because she's involved in passing counterfeit notes. That's one of the things that she does to keep her family fed. Trying to chase her down. And in the process... Uh, Don't the give away too much. Conflict between the two of them mm-hmm. and the discussions and the interaction of the two of them that eventually results in that, 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 in a that. decision.
2: Okay, All right. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a thrilling book, uh, listeners. Definitely, when you get a chance, get a copy of Thieves Emporium. And Max, where can
3: they find Thieves Emporium? It's uh, available at all the major online booksellers. Okay. Uh, Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, Smashwords, mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get it at, at any of those locations. It's also available in a number of bookstores, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I can tell, because I keep getting told of sales to bookstores, but they won't tell me which bookstores bought them. That's the way Space is. Hmm. So uh, Amazon has almost 110 reviews nice. right now, nice uh, rating of 4.6 on average. It's pretty good. Uh, Barnes & Noble and Words have the same rating, although they don't have quite as many reviews. Mm-hmm. So um, it seems to be doing very well. It seems to have caught on.
2: Nice. Now, I have
3: to give away one thing and give away also something about your second book.
2: In Thieves Emporium, in that world, that future that's set
3: in a not-so-distant future, Mm -hmm. there is no Bitcoin. There is no Bitcoin. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And the problem that I had writing the book was I had to decide what I could put in there and what I couldn't, just based on space and size and yep. distance and complexity. Yes. Bitcoin is a very complicated topic. Mm-hmm. And so instead the book uh, talks about a digital gold system mm-hmm. in which you have depositors, uh, distributed individual depositors who hold gold on account mm-hmm. and uh, electronically transfer a title back mm-hmm. and forth yes. for that gold and that represents the money that is used in the system. Right. Um, So the
2: point of Thieves Emporium is not mm -hmm. a book about Bitcoin. The point is, as you described a few minutes ago, and your second book is also not going to be about
3: Bitcoin, your second novel, but it's going to have Bitcoin in it. It is. It is going to have Bitcoin in it, because for one of the reasons that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, which is that one of the conflicts that goes on in the book is the government's attempt to control internet access, Mm -hmm. and that means control the physical internet structure that already exists. Mm -hmm. And the response by those underground individuals who are trying to continue to stay free in the digital world Mm -hmm. is to produce a series of meshnet systems and pay for those meshnet systems with microchannel and Bitcoin. Hmm. Uh, And one of the subjects that is discussed is the issue of anonymity with Bitcoin, because Mm -hmm. as we know, Bitcoin is only pseudonymous. Mm Uh, But one of the weaknesses that Bitcoin is subject to comes about because they're able to identify tracking activities like IP addresses in the real world. Mm -hmm. If Bitcoin transactions all took place in a a web space, and a dark web, where it was impossible to find out what the IP addresses were of people who used Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. where it was impossible to find out what they spent Bitcoin on because Mm -hmm. they spent it in that dark web on the other side of the the secrecy wall, Mm -hmm. the anonymity of Bitcoin would suddenly be a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. Probably good enough so that you wouldn't need a Monero. Right. Now, whether you do need a Monero and a Dash, I don't know. But one has to make some speculative guesses. And that was the, the guess that I'm operating on in this book.
2: Nice. And you know, whether it's Bitcoin, Monero, Dash, what have you, I am certain that <laughs> 10 or 20 years from now, there are going to be a lot more digital currencies out there that people can use completely anonymously above and beyond Bitcoin, Monero, Absolutely. and Dash. I mean, there's no there's no way around
3: that. The, thing is that the space is evolving very quickly.
2: Very quickly. Yes. And it's going to evolve. I guess some people say it's evolving exponentially. But okay, so let me ask you another question about your new book.
3: Can I be in it? Uh, actually, there is a need. Uh, at one point, Superman does appear on on the stage. I'm going to be Superman, and, the and you're going to be Superman. That's oh man, correct. dude,
2: <laughs> you're a good man. You're a good man. Love you, Max. Hey, any parting words before we close this
3: thing down? Only that uh, you need to keep the faith, and keep struggling to help us break free of what seems to be a growing worldwide tyranny.
2: Now, are you talking to me? Or are you talking to my listeners? I'm talking to your listeners. Nice.
3: Keep the faith and and keep up the struggle against what seems to be a growing worldwide tyranny i like it man and you know
2: i always say that whatever you can do in your own neighborhood with your own family to empower your neighbors your friends your family to educate them to help them uh to give somebody a lift anything you can do to help somebody whether it's holding a door for somebody or giving somebody a little loan if they need it whatever it takes uh... you know that grassroots type of stuff it really does go a long way um, to making you know your surroundings your neighborhood to making things a little bit better and then speak out right you know don't be afraid to speak out if someone in your local coffee shop says to you no politics in here Keep talking <laughs> keep talking politics and, uh, you know, keep speaking out bravely about what you believe. And you don't have to yell. You don't have to use profanity. You don't have to get mad at anybody. You can be gentle and kind and caring and speak strong words and speak with bravery and have genuine courage and not be dissuaded by anyone's... Uh, furrowed brow or dissuaded by anyone's frowns or anything like that. Uh, You know, really, it doesn't take that much to be courageous and to be brave. Just speak what you believe uh, and speak from your heart and speak honestly, right?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: All right, Max Hernandez. Listeners, you've been listening to author Max Hernandez. If you haven't done it already, you can order a copy of Max's book, Thieves Emporium, without even getting up out of your chair. Go to Amazon or the other booksellers that he mentioned online and buy a copy of Thieves Emporium today. I have a copy I'm willing to sell for half price. Just joking, folks. I'm keeping my copy. It's signed by Max. I love it. Max Hernandez. Thank you so much for traveling to Nashville and for coming to join us here in the Treehouse Studio. Listeners, you've been listening to Max Hernandez. Thank you, John. Thank you, man. Bye. Bye. I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, author Max Hernandez, the author of Thieves' Emporium. You know, folks, as a longtime fan of well written future fiction, I am proud to endorse this book for both the quality of the writing as well as the timely warnings and the call to freedom gifted to us by Max Hernandez by way of this well-written novel. And of course, I cannot wait to get my hands on Max's new novel, which will be coming out soon, I hope. And an extra special thanks to our sponsor Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax, the original all natural non-toxic boot wax with a scent of orange. The Nashville Wax Company is now offering their newest product, Moonshine Miracle Residue Remover, for removing stubborn sticky stuff. It's like goo gone, but without the petroleum-based chemicals. All Moonshine products are 100% natural and are available at 15 different fine retail outlets in the nashville area including the shops at the nashville airport to order a tin of moonshine boot wax or a four ounce brown bottle of moonshine miracle residue remover just head over to moonshinebootwax.com use your credit card your debit card or better yet pay the modern way with bitcoin that's right bitcoin the modern way to pay at moonshinebootwax.com and congratulations to the Bitcoins and Gravy freelance transcriptionist for his U.S. elections winnings. Don't spend that Bitcoin in one place, my friend, and make sure to drink lots of good filtered water. For more information about transcription services and high-quality editing, check out Diary of a Freelance And finally, I'd like to thank my loyal listeners, that's you, for tuning in and for giving me such great feedback about the show. Your comments in the show notes are always appreciated, as are the tips that you send to my Bitcoin wallet. Signing off now from Nashville, Tennessee, I'm John Barrett, the host of Bitcoins and Gravy, Here each week with my trusty dog, Maxwell, right by my side. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Until next week, friends, remember that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. So get out there and say something or do something and be brave about it and be proud of it.
1: now climb aboard y'all this train is bound for glory and there's plenty of room for all Count our money out for every government Oh, Bitcoin flies on through the skies of virtuality A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're gonna rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Everybody knows, everybody knows, and everybody knows you. Give me some exposure. Everybody knows your name, sing it. Oh, Lord, pass me some more. Oh, Lord, before I have to go. Oh, Lord, pass me some more.
4: the thing I want to shift the conversation slightly because I think it's wrong to think about cryptocurrencies displacing fiat or measuring cryptocurrencies against the fiat they displace. That I think is not the right way to look at it any more than we would look at the internet and say, well, how many phone lines? and fax machines, has the internet displaced? Well, it hasn't really displaced them. What it did was it rendered the entire paradigm obsolete and made the very measurement of internet in terms of phone lines and fax, ludicrous and irrelevant. And so the question is, When do we start measuring Bitcoin, not in terms of it being worth four hundred and fifty dollars, but in terms of one Bitcoin being worth one Bitcoin, and in terms of Bitcoin not displacing economic activity in fiat, but essentially enabling completely new models of economic activity that have nothing to do with the old paradigm, and cannot even be measured in terms of the old paradigm. We're currently measuring cryptocurrencies in terms of the old paradigm, because that's the context we have. And that's a bit like saying that the total value of the internet is the number of the users times how much they're paying... for their DSL and cable modem connections, or how many bricks-and-mortar stores it's replaced. And again, that's completely missing the point. It enables entirely new ways of communicating. Well, Bitcoin enables entirely new ways of economic transactions and economic activity. From that perspective, I think it's wrong to look at whether a nation or a significant percentage of population... have adopted Bitcoin. Let's look more at the possibility of having the first transnational community... of economic activity on the internet that is independent of nation states and that exhibits elements of sovereignty through financial purchasing power on its own without the use of a sovereign currency. Uh, So that is far more interesting to me because it completely renders the old paradigm irrelevant and makes it unnecessary to measure ourselves by those metrics. I think one of the key things we're going to see is Bitcoin affecting some of the core capabilities within the internet. For example, monetizing and rewarding the creation of content, as well as building and paying for infrastructure... for internet connectivity, by making that infrastructure productive in terms of economic activity, because it now carries a currency over it. The other big milestones for me are the ability to disrupt the remittances market, enabling the transnational flows of currency from migrant workers to their home countries and families, which can have a very, very significant and immediate impact on poverty around the world, because that's one of the most exploitative markets in financial services. And the third one is enabling um, essentially uh, cryptocurrency IPOs, where companies anywhere in the world can make public offerings of crypto stocks available to investors anywhere in the world without any barriers to entry and creating completely new economic activity by allowing for direct investment. So peer-to-peer payments, peer-to-peer remittances, peer-to-peer crowdfunding as some of the first three major milestones for cryptocurrencies.
2: Hear ye, hear ye, have you heard? I have for you a magic word. And today's magic word is liberty. L I B E R T Y. Liberty, as in the sentence, those who would give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Benjamin Franklin. (laughs)
4: No <laughs> no